This episode is an audio version of a keynote that I gave at Planet Textiles, which was part of ITMA, a machinery expo for the apparel sector held every four years, most recently in Milan in June 2023. I should qualify that the views and opinions expressed in this speech are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views or the positions of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which was involved in organizing the Planet Textiles event, or any other entities that they represent. I also want to take a moment to tell you about our next mini-series, which will likely start in late October, and is called Crossover Moments. The inspiration for the series comes from something that my friend Dr. Krishnamanda, who has been on this show a couple of times, shared with me. He emphasizes that the first step towards systemic transformation is personal transformation. So this series, Crossover Moments, is all about exploring key moments of personal transformation. We'll be asking people in the industry to share and reflect on moments that cause them to question and ultimately reject conventional or mainstream or status quo approaches to sustainable fashion. It's a series that I'm personally really excited about because since manufactured's inception, we've kind of under the radar focused on creating content that highlights and debunks invisible assumptions underpinning conventional approaches to sustainable fashion. The show also offers an alternative diagnosis to problems rooted in the lived experiences of apparel producers. But we've never really been explicit about what we're doing or our intention or explored it at a personal level. And so I'm really hoping that this series creates room for reimagining how the term sustainable fashion should be defined and operationalized. So again, be sure to check back in late October when we'll be releasing that mini-series. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening to this keynote. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for sharing a piece of your morning with me and to the Sustainable Apparel Coalition and Planet Textiles for having me. Inviting me to speak here today was kind of a bold move on the SAC's part. You see, I've been a fairly critical friend of the SAC in recent years. I suppose I need to briefly rewind to the last Planet Textiles and the SAC event in July 2019 in Barcelona to explain why I'm here talking to you today. I attended that event in my capacity as general manager of a garment factory in Cambodia. I was in town to look at printers, and given that our small factory didn't have a dedicated sustainability person, my boss had me attend the SAC and Planet Textiles event too. It was at that event that I met a couple of people working in sustainability on the factory side. Those individuals were, and still are, climate experts. At the time, this was a topic that, as an operations person who happened to way back when also have a degree in human rights, in other words, the social stuff, was pretty far out of my comfort zone. Fast forward just under a year to April 2020 and I'd left my job as a factory manager and was looking for ways to amplify supplier perspectives on sustainability, because my time as a factory manager had left me with the conviction that supplier perspectives on sustainability were underrepresented and misunderstood. Some of my earliest supporters were those same factory-side climate experts that I'd met in Barcelona. I'm particularly indebted to Matthew Gunther of Tal Apparel and Vidura Ralapanawa of Epic Group for helping me get to the point where I'm able to articulate what I'm going to share with you today. They were some of my earliest guests on Manufactured, 
this very podcast. And eventually, we would also do a mini-series of episodes specifically on the topic of decarbonization. They were also the early and steadfast supporters of the supplier meetups that I host for GIZ Fabric and the Asia Garment Hub. As a result, many of the conversations within that group also focused on the challenges manufacturers trying to reduce their contribution to climate change face. In the last 10 months, as a result of all these conversations, I've been working on three parallel strands of work related to decarbonization. One was facilitating a series of workshops to try and arrive at principles of collective action for the UN Fashion Industry Charter for Climate Action signatories. This was a series of five workshops held between November 2022 and February 2023. It was a small group of about 10 people, fairly equally split between brands and manufacturers. The catalyst for this work was that although the signatories to the UN Fashion Charter have all signaled their commitment and intention to supporting one another to limit global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, some signatories still felt that in practice, players within the fashion industry struggle to work as a collective. The purpose of this work was to develop practical principles that help companies in the fashion industry approach challenges related to reduced greenhouse gas emissions as a collective. A second stream of work is a forthcoming deep dive research report I'm collaborating on in my capacity as Intelligence Director for Transformers Foundation, which is all about denim's decarbonization and how legislation in the global north could more effectively address denim suppliers decarbonization barriers. That paper will be out in November. And a third stream of work is a forthcoming paper that will explore models for financing decarbonization. The need for this paper came directly out of the supplier meetups that I mentioned earlier and was co-commissioned by Epic Group, MAS, Simple Approach, Nitex, Artistic Milliners, Tall Apparel, and Pactix Group, and is also being supported by GIZ Fabric. That paper is being written by Dr. Enrico Biffis of Imperial London. I won't be sharing much about that paper today as the research is just getting started, but stay tuned. All that to say, those serendipitous connections with factory-side climate people back at this same event in 2019 are a big part of how I ended up so involved in the decarbonization space today. I'm still not a technical expert, but I've done a lot of listening and have had many opportunities to notice, to observe, how different stakeholders talk about decarbonization, what they seem to agree on, and what they seem to disagree on. Today, I'd like to take some time to reflect on these disparate but related pieces of work and share with you what I've noticed, in the hope that it helps give a language or a framework for making the hard conversations we need to have more constructive, more collective, so why do we need to put areas of consensus and dissensus on the table? I want to start with this word collective. At one of the very first supplier meetups, I remarked, there aren't really a lot of incentives for manufacturers to decarbonize. One of the participating suppliers looked at me and said, I really don't like this talk of incentives. Manufacturers are not dolphins at SeaWorld. This isn't about throwing a fish and getting people to jump. We need to be having a collective conversation. I've been thinking about this comment a lot over the last year. What did this supplier mean by a collective decarbonization conversation? The dictionary defines collective as 
denoting a number of persons or things considered as one group or whole. Operating as part of a whole requires being able to see the whole, understand how the parts come together, and where within a bigger picture you might sit. It means letting go of a very narrow understanding of self-interest, and recognizing that actually, one's own self-interest is for the collective to succeed. When it comes to a challenge like climate change, there are no individual winners and losers. Each company is one piece of a bigger picture. If one company fails to achieve its decarbonization goals, we will all fail. So on the one hand, working collectively means working as parts of a whole. And yet, I've noticed that how we define the problem of decarbonization tends to depend on where within the collective we sit. We are struggling to zoom out, get a bird's eye view, and see how the parts come together. We can't work collectively if we don't have empathy and understanding for different positions within our whole. The first step to being able to co-imagine a different future is recognition and empathy for all parts of that whole. It's for this reason that I'd like to share my observations on where the industry seems to agree and where it doesn't. My thoughts are organized around three questions. The first is, how do we decide who should do how much? The second is, who pays? And the third is, who and what drives change? Who should do how much? How do we effectively distribute responsibility for a collective goal? Someone recently said to me, a collective goal is not just a collection of equal individual goals. This begs the question, what is our collective decarbonization goal? It was the workshops I held with members of the decarbonization working group within the UN Fashion Charter that helped me to articulate this. We realized that implicitly there tends to be an assumption that setting a science-based or science-aligned target is our collective goal. We realized that implicitly we were conflating the target-setting instruments, the mechanisms for distributing the collective goal, with the collective goal itself. After a couple of months of discussions, the participating brands and manufacturers all seemed to agree on this point, but it took us several months of very in-depth conversations to be able to articulate this distinction. And yet, in everyday conversation, I think this distinction remains blurry. Implicitly, the industry treats science-based targets as the collective goal, when in fact our collective goal is to achieve the Paris Agreement. And target setting, whether those are science-based or not, is about how we distribute responsibility for that collective goal. This point also came up in the research we did for the forthcoming Transformers Foundation report. A supplier participating in the research for that paper reflected, Collective action has been reduced to a collection of individual actions. So I think what is important for us to do is to bring back this notion of collective action. For example, let's assume that we have a completely vertical farm to brand. The supply chain is completely vertically integrated. So, you know, the farm makes X amount of cotton and all of that goes to one mill and all of that goes to one factory and all of that is sold by the one brand. And that's the only thing any of them do. Then it's easy to create a collective decarbonization target, and we can agree on the mechanism on how that burden is shared. But the moment you start splitting it into your tier one, your tier two, or your tier three, we are kind of creating that separation that makes us lose the collective objective. If we are in agreement about what the collective goal is, 
in other words, achieving the Paris Agreement, then the next question is whether we also agree on how that goal should be distributed, how it should be allocated or translated or assigned to individual companies. I want to return to those fashion charter workshops. We began by trying to pinpoint some of the undesirable behaviors and events we see happening in our sector. Participants seemed to agree that although individual companies are making science-based or science-aligned climate targets, we are not on track to achieve the Paris Agreement. Then we dug deeper. Right now, the rules of the game effectively push companies into setting science-based or science-aligned targets. Science-based targets distribute responsibility for our collective goal equally across companies. It's worth noting that the rules of the game have, for the most part, not been created by manufacturers, meaning that this group is denied agency in this who-should-do-how-much question, and yet is expected to take full agency in delivering those targets. We then dug even deeper. This approach, or this structure, is enabled by the implicit belief that I think many people hold, which is that it's possible for all companies to set and achieve a science-based target. In other words, all companies are capable of decarbonizing at the same trajectory and timeline. Since so many of the manufacturers I've talked to were so adamant that other stakeholders didn't seem to understand that their decarbonization potential was affected by their broader operating context, and that not everybody could decarbonize at the same speed or to the same extent, I was surprised to find that the small group of individuals on the brand side participating in the UN Fashion Charter workshops generally seemed to agree that not all companies were technically able to decarbonize at the same speed and to the same extent. I think the point of disagreement actually comes at a structural level. Even though the group all seemed to embrace the belief that not all companies can decarbonize at the same rate and speed, and again, getting to this point took several in-depth conversations, we do not agree on what this should mean for target setting, at least in the medium term. I think the reason this is so contentious is because the answer isn't clear-cut. It's not just a science question. It's also a moral and ethical question. For example, a recent article by Ian Morse in the MIT Review states, and I'll put the link to this in the show notes, the process of allocating the limited carbon budget to individual companies, sectors, and regions hangs on assumptions about what the economy of the future will look like and how to fairly assign responsibility for climate action, end quote. Later in that same article, Ian Morse quotes Mark McElroy, director of the Center for Sustainable Organizations and an original member of the SBTI Technical Advisory Group. And in that quote, Mark McElroy says, that's where these metrics and indicators depart from the science and take us into the realm of values, ethics, and morality, end quote. The article goes on to say, and I quote, for that reason, scientists have said that SBTI's methods do not support a UN principle established in 1992 that richer countries should bear a larger share of the responsibility for mitigating climate change, end quote. 
While the equity piece is certainly a critical part of this picture, one of the most interesting things that came out of the conversations held for the Transformers Foundation report was that although suppliers were certainly using moral arguments to advocate for differentiated targets, it seemed equally important to them to emphasize the pragmatic and strategic importance of differentiated targets. They stressed that Equity aside, if we do not set differentiated targets, we will collectively fail. One supplier shared, You know, an apparel manufacturer with only stitching machines should not be placed in the same group as a mill. And similarly, a farm group should not be placed in the same group as an apparel manufacturer or a mill because all of them have a different set of working conditions with completely different sorts of emissions. So if you give them a similar target, it puts added pressure on someone who cannot achieve that target in a given time. Somebody else said, What we have is a collective target as an industry. We want to reduce 45% of our emissions against a 2019 baseline by 2030, and then completely decarbonize by 2050. So that's a collective target. But what we've done is we've broken it down and given the same target to everybody, irrespective of whether you're a mill, Whether you're a cut-and-sew manufacturer, irrespective of where your history is, how much work you've already done, or what issue or difficulty you're facing. Somebody else shared, Use of direct power purchase agreements with renewable energy, which is available in India but not available in Pakistan and Bangladesh, so people who have it, like in India, can use them, and that will be expected of them because it's not a very expensive thing to do in India. But since Bangladesh or Pakistan don't have that option, asking them to use that to decarbonize doesn't make sense. If you operate in Bangladesh, where less than 5% of energy is renewable, you can't decarbonize to the same extent as a company operating in a place where renewables are available. In other words, differentiated responsibility for a collective goal is not only a matter of equity, which we're coming to, but also a matter of efficacy. If we assign companies a target that they by definition and through no fault of their own cannot achieve, then collectively we will all fail. I like the analogy of a pie. Let's say our collective goal is to eat a pie within 10 minutes. We slice that pie into equally sized pieces, and we tell all companies to eat their slice at the same speed. We know that some companies won't be able to do this because maybe they've just had lunch and are already full. Or maybe they're suffering from arthritis and they're older. Or whatever. But we know from the outset that not everybody will be able to eat their slice in 10 minutes. Which means that collectively, we will fail to eat the pie within 10 minutes. So to recap, I'm going to go out on a limb and speculate that many people here today could get on board with the idea that the decarbonization potential a company has depends on context, where they are, what they make, and what a given company has or hasn't already done to try and decarbonize. However, suppliers don't feel like other stakeholders get this because the methodology we deploy for distributing our collective goal doesn't take this into account. And this is where the biggest point of dissensus is. Even though I think many people seem to agree that the decarbonization potential of a company depends on context, we do not agree on what this should mean for target setting. Many suppliers would advocate letting go of science-based targets in favor of a differentiated target setting approach. But for other stakeholders, this seems to instill a lot of fear. 
Some seem to fear that differentiated targets might be used to justify inaction, and including manufacturers, some manufacturers. Others fear a technical monster. Is it possible to develop a technically viable way of evaluating and monitoring efforts, especially when what is technically possible in a given operating context is continuously changing? So on this who should do how much question, how do we decide who should do how much, here's my call to action. For those of you who still embrace the belief that all companies can decarbonize at the same speed, irrespective of its operations and location, I urge you to let go of that belief. It's holding us back. Then we need to experiment with different approaches to target setting to find out what works, that can live alongside, in parallel with science-based targets, and see how the results compare. We can't afford to ignore this point of disagreement, to put all of our eggs in one basket and just hope for the best. The stakes are too high. The second question I want to address today is who pays? How do we finance decarbonization? And how do we do this equitably? Let's say the industry was in agreement about target setting and the most effective way to translate the goals of the Paris Agreement into individual company targets. Just because there's technically an opportunity to decarbonize or to eat some of that pie does not mean it's economically feasible to do so. That's why I want to move from the how do we decide who should do how much question to the who pays question. Here too, we seem to agree on a lot of the basics, the fundamentals. For example, during the UN Fashion Charter workshops, nobody disputed that it's difficult to secure financing for long payback or no payback investments. Participants agreed. Nobody wants to assume the risk of investing too much for greenhouse gas reductions. Participants also agreed. Right now, decarbonization is being financed through individual companies' own funding and debt, whether those companies are brands or suppliers. If the needed investments don't have a payback, that's a problem. I want to dig another level deeper. Both brands and suppliers participating in the workshops seemed to be in agreement that the implicit and often unacknowledged belief that keeps this structure in place is the belief that decarbonization leads to cost savings or is cost neutral. In other words, what's good for the world is also good for business. But again, Getting to this point took several in-depth conversations. Similarly, during one of the supplier meetups, a supplier expressed frustration that the general perception seems to be that it's possible for decarbonization-related investments to lead to cost savings if only suppliers put more effort into figuring out how to make that happen. They expressed that from their perspective, Brand and retailer purchasing practices determine whether a particular innovation will scale and become financially viable. And finally, this same sentiment was also expressed by a supplier during the research for the forthcoming Transformers Foundation report. One supplier shared, Climate change should be our first priority when you think about it, but we also need to keep our financial stability. So that's the biggest challenge the increasing price on the production costs, that really holds us back because no brands want to pay for the price. That's the main issue here. Further complicating this picture is access to finance. For example, one supplier in the research for the forthcoming Transformers Foundation report shared, the return on investment is not the only determinant of project financing. 
It's also about your capacity to borrow, which is a really big problem. So we've seen plenty of companies who are not doing the investment in decarbonization, not because they don't have fast payback projects, but because there are constraints that blocked them from accessing finance, which could simply be not having future visibility into orders. Even if a company, whether that's a brand or a supplier, could generate return on investment, and even if they were technically able to access the necessary capital, suppliers participating in the Transformers Foundation research also pointed out that the funding available is simply insufficient. For example, one supplier reflected, One project that I'm pursuing right now requires a couple of million dollars. So we have looked at the various funds, but the limits are way less than that, you know? There are many organizations in Europe and in other places who are willing to fund decarbonization. But the limit of funding is way too low. Like, some of them are not even going above 500,000 euros. So that becomes a bigger problem to decarbonize quickly. We won't be able to achieve our targets by 2030 or 2050 if the pace of funding is at the current level. Cue the calls from suppliers for equity investments, not just loans. For example, during the research for the Transformers Foundation report, someone said, The brand should come in with equity-based solutions. So if the brand puts equity, that means that the financial risk of the project is actually shared. But there could be other things. Like, for example, there are project risks, which is normally compensated through some level of securitization that can be eliminated for manufacturers by underwriting. For example, I've seen the European Central Bank underwriting decarbonization incentives so that banks can lend to factories without collateral and at a lower rate because their risk is covered in some other way. I think this is where we tend to get stuck. Activists and brands and retailers subject to consumer pressure are unwilling to budge on the pace of decarbonization because the commonplace assumption is that the only way to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement is to distribute responsibility for it equally across companies. Suppliers, overwhelmed by this distribution and their inability to finance solutions, feel that the only viable path is to advocate for a slower pace of decarbonization. It's worth pausing on this hamster wheel of a debate to zoom out. The implicit and often unacknowledged belief that underpins this cyclical discussion is the idea that companies must self-fund their decarbonization. But what if companies did not have to self-fund their decarbonization? What if we could decouple the who should do how much and how fast question from the who pays question? Suppliers participating in the research for the Transformers Foundation report had some ideas about how to achieve this decoupling. For example, one supplier suggested, So whenever we are dealing with any brand, there should be some certain percentage, a certain amount of profit that can be contributed directly for the decarbonization of their supply chain. Another said, A brand, which takes the most amount of revenue from the product and the most amount of profit out of the product, is the least contributor to decarbonization. But if we all put 0.5% of our turnover into one pot, 50% of that money would come from the brand, and that could actually be channeled into the direct decarbonization where it matters the most. So it's another way of thinking about it, but that will also establish that the responsibility of decarbonization stays within the collective. It's not with tier one or tier two or with tier three, it's ours. Just like in the how do we decide who should do how much question, 
the disagreement within the who pays question seems to be at a structural level, in the how. We agree that companies are struggling to secure financing for decarbonization, even for the initiatives that do generate returns. We agree that even though there are some investments that will generate returns, the deep decarbonization required to achieve the Paris Agreement will not lead to cost savings or be cost neutral. In other words, some of the investments that have to be made have long or no paybacks. Cautiously, I think we're also starting to agree that companies, whether brands or suppliers, cannot self-fund the deep decarbonization needed to achieve the Paris Agreement, and that the financial instruments we currently have at our disposal are unlikely to solve this. We also agree that we need new financial models to de-risk those investments and ensure that the risk is distributed equitably. But we're not sure what those are yet. How do we monitor, reward, and give social recognition to companies putting money on the line? How do we invent new financing models that go beyond loans and debt? So my call to action for you on this who pays question is, if you're somebody who still believes that the deep decarbonization that's needed to achieve the Paris Agreement will lead to cost savings or be cost neutral, I urge you to let go of that belief. We need to explicitly acknowledge that debt and loans, whether they come from banks or from brands or some other entity, are not going to get us where we want to be. Then we need to do some experiments to resolve some of the pieces we're not sure about and don't yet have answers for. How do we finance no payback investments where debt just won't cut it? How do we make the large sums of money needed available to those with the most significant decarbonization potential? We also need to experiment with new reporting structures that give social recognition to companies based on the level of investment they make in decarbonization. For example, reporting on investments as a percentage of turnover. The third question I want to explore today is who and what drives change? How and why is decarbonization expected to happen? During a recent supplier meetup, we were discussing how brand-driven sustainability was resulting in solutions that did not make sense within a given context. And yet, brands, just like any other stakeholder, certainly have a role to play in driving change. It was at this point that someone put forward the term supplier-led, brand-supported. During the UN Fashion Charter workshops, participants seemed to agree that right now, climate action is implemented through a cascading, top-down approach. Brands are held accountable for finding decarbonization solutions for their supply chains. The result can be solutions that are not fit for context. I want to go one level deeper. Structurally, the group concluded that this undesirable outcome is, at least in part, due to the fact that the available decarbonization tools and programs in the market are focused on selling to brands and meeting brands' needs. The group also seemed to agree that the belief keeping this structure in place is that brands are capable and responsible for directing decarbonization targets, roadmaps, and solutions. Implicitly, we assume that a brand's obligation or duty is to ensure that their supply chain partners are decarbonizing. We also implicitly assume that manufacturers are passive and look for brands to guide their decarbonization pathways, and that the drive for solutions must come from the top, from the brands. The group went on to articulate that they believed that meaningful solutions will be collaborative rather than directive, 
Multiple types of collaboration and networks will drive change. Centralized, decentralized, vertical, lateral, and engagement with non-industry stakeholders, and each type of relationship should be activated. I'm going to go out on another limb and say that I think many of the people in this room would agree with that statement, but we're sort of in a weird place. On the one hand, our whole approach to sustainability over the last 30 years has been premised on the belief that brands must be the ones to drive change from the top down. On the other hand, there's also increasing recognition that solutions will differ based on context and that accommodating this reality requires more of a bottom-up approach. I think that as an industry, we're collectively unsure of how to reconcile these two things and how to operationalize a very different approach when the machine, the systems, the structures push us in a different direction. It's worth pointing out that I think suppliers themselves also don't have the answer to this question. For example, during a supplier meetup, one person remarked, what is my local? Even within this group of suppliers, we're all suppliers, but we're mostly making different products and most of us are based in different countries. This person went on to ask, is my local the factory? Is it the operator on the production floor or something else? Someone responded, You know, a garment factory operating in Bangkok may have a decarbonization strategy that has more in common with a rice processing facility also in Bangkok than it does with a garment factory in Bangladesh. This morning, my friend Krishna Manda shared a short post with me on LinkedIn that I think captures the spirit, paradox, and uncertainty that comes with this term supplier-led, brand-supported. It was a post by Catherine Russ, who said, and I quote, We live in a world where there are more leadership models and approaches being used simultaneously than at any time in history. However, when it comes to partnerships, we seem to go beyond simply adopting a new model and instead enter a whole new paradigm of so-called collaborative leadership. This type of leadership works on very different premises from many of the other traditional forms of leadership models because we can't assume to influence, negotiate, and reach our goals in similar ways that we have done with the old models. The rules of the game change considerably as we have to learn to navigate a whole different culture in partnerships with people we don't have power over, and that means we have to change our assumptions about how things work. She goes on to say, We have found that problems in early partnerships come about when we try to adopt the hierarchical approaches we've been accustomed to working in for decades and assume that they will give us results in our partnerships. Understanding why old operating ways don't work is the first step to opening a whole new world of possibilities for working in partnerships, end quote. So my call to action on this who and what drives change question is, It's time to let go of the belief that solutions must be directive and come from the top. It's time to embrace the concept of supplier-led, brand-supported. Because if we don't, we'll fail to come up with solutions that are appropriate for a given context. Just like the who should do how much question and the who pays question, the key area of uncertainty and maybe also dissensus is in the how. For example, we lack location-specific and tier-specific sector roadmaps for decarbonization. We need to experiment with structures and platforms for lateral and local relationships between companies, and especially between manufacturers. 
For example, groups dedicated to promoting local solutions and overcoming local challenges. I want to close with a call for empathy and social recognition. And I want to do that by going back to this word collective. Again, the dictionary definition of collective is denoting a number of persons or things considered as one group or whole. And again, operating as part of a whole requires letting go of a very narrow understanding of self-interest. When it comes to a challenge like climate change, there are no individual winners and losers. Each company is one piece of a bigger picture. And if one company fails to achieve its decarbonization goals, we will all fail. The first step to being able to co-imagine a different future is recognition and empathy for all parts of that whole. Today, I've articulated a couple of key areas where we seem to agree and where we don't, and where we might go from here. But more broadly, the call to action I'd like to leave you with is a call for empathy and a willingness to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Suppliers, in particular, don't feel heard or understood. For example, during one supplier meetup, I asked participants whether they could describe a conversation about decarbonization during which they did feel recognition, during which they did feel heard. Silence. Then a few chuckles. One manufacturer, seemingly in an effort to underscore how rarely he feels understood, remarked, that's a very good question. After a few moments, another manufacturer tentatively put forward an example. He started by describing the context. The person did not work directly for a brand, nor were they a direct client. A decarbonization target also wasn't the starting point for the conversation. Both these things helped to make this a different kind of conversation. This person was also willing to look beyond the standard decarbonization toolbox. There was recognition that business as usual was not going to get us where we want to be. I followed up by asking other participants to describe a hypothetical conversation about decarbonization that would feel positive. Here are some of the responses, and I'm paraphrasing. The other person has to be willing to look at the whole picture, not only their own position. How do we get people to see beyond their own interests? Is it even possible? We struggle even within our own company, between headquarters and the factory floor, to get people to do this. Someone else said, the person doesn't shy away from the gap between where we are and where we want to be. Someone else said, the person embraces complexity and is willing to invest in understanding the details. Someone else said, the other person is willing to implicate themselves, acknowledge that they too have to change the way that they work. It's recognized that we all have a role to play. Having empathy and working collectively requires a couple of things, I think. First, defining self-interest broadly. Decarbonization goals must be about more than market differentiation. There is no such thing as a single sustainable business. It doesn't matter if one company achieves its decarbonization targets if the rest of the industry and beyond isn't able to follow. This means acknowledging our codependence. As one manufacturer so poignantly remarked, competition loses its meaning in a situation where we all win or we all lose. Second, being vulnerable. Acknowledge the ways in which you contribute to the problem. We cannot define self-interest broadly if we aren't willing to admit the ways in which we contribute to collective outcomes that none of us want. Our point of departure must be that we all have a role to play. We are all implicated. 
We are all part of the problem. We all need to change. Third, listening. We cannot define self-interest broadly if we do not understand how our own business practices impact others. This means setting aside your day job, your own point of view, and spending time in someone else's shoes. It means hearing what's being said without making judgments about whether it's good or bad, right or wrong. It means approaching someone whose lived experience does not fit within your own framework for understanding the world with curiosity rather than judgment. Fourth, it means letting go of the impulse to control. We all do things that lead to outcomes that collectively none of us want. Most of the time, it's not because we are bad people in need of more oversight and control. Final thoughts. Earlier, I shared a bit about my journey and how I ended up here talking to you about decarbonization today, and that a lot of it has to do with the serendipitous relationships that came out of this same event back in 2019. But there's another reason, and that reason also became evident to me back at this Planet Textiles and SAC event in 2019. At that event, people would immediately ask me which brand I represented. I would reply to bewildered faces that I was the general manager of a factory in Cambodia. Being confronted with that question all day long made something that I sort of already knew but had never really put into words very explicitly. In people's imaginations, factory managers are men of color, probably from the global south. They are not white women, like me, who talk with an American accent. Back at that event in 2019, I realized that because of my skin color, Because of my accent and the way that I speak English, I was able to share my experiences with a degree of openness and transparency that my manufacturer colleagues often could not, because I was given the benefit of the doubt. Non-suppliers responded to my insight with genuine curiosity. Nobody questioned my commitment to my staff or to the environment. In the last couple of years, I have seen again and again how when I say something, It is received completely differently to when my friends in the world of manufacturing say exactly the same thing. The reason I raise this issue is because it's a huge missed opportunity. As a sector, as a collective, and as individuals, our implicit biases are causing us to miss out on key perspectives and insights that just might help us figure out some of the answers. Thanks for listening to Manufactured. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.